For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Well, good morning. Welcome again to Hillside. Thank you for being with us this morning. Uh, would you turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1? And this morning we're going to be in verses uh, 15 through 19. 15 through 19. Um, we are in a series in Ephesians. This is our fifth week in the series. And in the first 14 verses of this letter, what the Apostle Paul has done for us is he's provided for us what has been called by some the greatest symphony of salvation or just a wonderful hymn of praise over what God has done for us in Christ. And so Paul has spent the first 14 verses drawing the reader, drawing us or pointing us to God first and who we are in Christ. He's told us that before the foundations of the earth, God planned out our salvation. And then he told us that Christ himself has secured our salvation by his blood. We are redeemed by the work of Christ on the cross. And then last week, if you were here with us, we studied uh, the reality that it is the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives to apply salvation to our lives, both now and until Christ returns. And this wonderful work, I hope you noticed it, this wonderful work of the triune God is glorious for all of us who believe upon Jesus Christ. If you're looking for the Trinity in Scripture, it is in those first 14 verses clearly. The point of what we have studied so far in these first 14 verses of Ephesians is this, praise God. Praise God. To God be all of the glory. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Turn your eyes upon God. Take your eyes off of yourself and look to God. That's how Paul starts this letter. He's so good to his people. Now, verses 3 through 14, which we've studied now, are a hard act to follow, truly. But Paul here follows these words with a very magnificent prayer. A really magnificent prayer. And we learn here that praise and prayer belong together. In fact, I would say that we need to praise God in order to pray to God. Well, why would I say that? Well, because praise of God puts God in his proper place in our lives. And so maybe you remember this. We did a Lord's Prayer series maybe a year ago, but Jesus taught his disciples how to pray by first teaching them to praise God. Do you remember that? He said, pray like this, our God who art in heaven, 
hallowed be thy name. So he said, notice who God is first. He's your father. He is in heaven. He is perfect. He is holy. Praise him. Praise God. And then present your request to God. Why would Jesus teach us this? Why is Paul teaching us this? Because when we focus on the praise of his glorious grace, then we are aware that he is more than able to do more than I could even ask or imagine. And so praising God develops our confidence in God. Another thing that I would love for us to notice before we jump into our passage this morning, and this might be something that's a little bit of an aside to our text, kind of a rabbit trail, but that's okay. It's free. This is a free extra sermon. But notice that Paul talks to the Ephesians about the Lord in verses 3 through 14. He begins to talk to the Lord about the Ephesians, uh, sorry, notice that Paul talks to the Ephesians about the Lord in verses 3 through 14, and then he begins to talk to the Lord about the Ephesians next. He prays for them, and here's this little rabbit trail that I want us to notice really quickly as we learn to pray for people. Prayer makes a difference. So after talking with someone who may be facing a difficulty or a challenge, what I have personally discovered in my ministry over and over again is that if I don't talk to the Lord about the person that I've just talked to about the Lord, that's kind of confusing, the loop never quite closes. And frustration sets in for me, even in my own home, after saying a word or two in a difficult circumstances, often to my kids, if I then simply pray about the situation, what tends to happen is peace tends to enter that situation. And guess what? It was never really about the result of my exhortation, but simply because the Lord moved in through a simple prayer of intercession. And so notice with me that Paul talks to the people about the Lord first, and then in the following verses, he talks to the Lord about the people. There's a lot to learn in there. There's power when followers of Jesus talk to the Lord about the people they've talked to. Both matter. We need to talk to people about God, but then we must also talk to the Lord about the people that we're sharing with. And so if you were a mom or a dad or a husband or a wife or a roommate or a coworker or whatever you are, hopefully you're in there somewhere. Would you try this with me? When you feel tension rise, step away, step outside and don't just count to five or work on your breathing. Pray, pray, give your request to God because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood like we think we do. Later on in Ephesians, in God's word, it says this, Ephesians 6, 12, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so our battle is against Satan. He is seeking to kill and steal and destroy. So what should we do? We should intercede in prayer. Talk to the Lord about the people you live with. Like I said, that's a 
rabbit trail a little bit for us. Let's jump back into the passage. But as we study this passage this morning, I want to lay out for you two hopes that I have for us in our church today. And my first hope is this. I hope that this passage will reorient the way that we pray for each other. And then my second hope would be this. I hope that this passage will reorient the things that you and I long for and understand and desire most in life. So as we dive into this passage, notice with me how Paul prays for the church in Ephesus and how this prayer might reorient us in our prayers for one another and in our desire for how people pray for us. Paul starts this passage this morning off in verses 15 through 16 with thanksgiving. Here's what he says. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So in light of the opening section of God's work, Paul now expresses gratitude to God for them. There are two characteristics of God's people in these verses that I want for us to take note of this morning. First, look at what Paul is thankful for in the lives of the Ephesians. He says, I am thankful for their faith. In thanking God for their faith in Jesus, Paul is definitely praising God for their saving faith. They've put their faith in Christ. They have been saved by grace through faith and not their own works, but he is also giving thanks for their practical faith. What do I mean by that? I mean that he is grateful to hear that the Ephesians believed Christ's work. They believed that Christ would take care of them through all of their lives. Their faith wasn't just for the future, which is good, but their faith was also for their lives right now. They believed that God was who he said he was. They trusted God in their daily lives in Ephesus. And so Paul is thanking God for that. He can see that in the church. The second characteristic for us to notice is love. Paul pairs the Ephesians' exemplary faith with their love towards all the saints, What's really significant here, and I don't want us to miss this, is not just that the people of Ephesus loved God and had faith in Christ, but also they loved each other. It's really significant and honestly very convicting that the word all shows up in there, isn't it? Meaning they loved all of their fellow Christians. The reason that this is so striking to us, maybe, and I can just speak for myself, is that this is often not true in Christian circles, is it? We can tend to be critical of each other. We can keep each other at an arm's length, not really loving our brothers and sisters in Christ. And Paul is thankful that that's not the case in Ephesus. The attitude among the Ephesians was, my life for your life. Their faith was practical, and they loved each other thoughtfully, freely, and purposefully. I was reminded this week of a picture that will be up on the screen, and I once saw and have even read about before. Maybe you've seen it before, too. But the artist calls this picture a fable or a parable of hell. And in the picture, there are several very obviously selfish, unhappy people around a table for a meal. Each person holds, you can see, a long-handled spoon with which it is impossible to feed themselves. 
They can only feed each other. But no one is willing to help another person out, and so they're miserable. They're only willing to feed themselves, and what Paul is saying in this first section is he's so thankful in this prayer because there was none of this in Ephesus. Their faith and their love, they were practical, and so they looked out for each other. They were bearing one another's burdens and inadequacies and eccentricities and sin, and they were doing it all in love. And it might feel like potentially I'm belaboring this point, but the reason that this is so important is because God's people are easily identifiable because they love one another. And the church in Ephesus lived out Jesus's commandment and it was causing people to want to be a part of what they were doing. Jesus said this in John 13, 35. He said, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So Paul is thankful for these two very important characteristics of God's people in Ephesus. And when faith and love are paired together in the church, we have something for which we can thank God for. Let me stop here and just ask us all something this morning based on what we have just read. Do we delight as a church in hearing of the faith and love of others in the church? Maybe another good question for us is this. Do we pray for our fellow believers like this? Here's why I ask this question of you. I will confess to you, and maybe you can relate to this, that I have a tendency to pray for those who are hurting, for those who are going through tragedies and difficulties, for those who are backsliding and failing. And don't get me wrong, those are good prayer requests. We should pray for people and their needs. But here in this section of scripture, Paul is saying something very different when he says, when I heard how well you were doing, I heard about your faith and your love and how well you were doing, I was moved to pray for you. I wonder if it's possible that we are missing opportunities in our prayer lives as a church. We maybe follow the American health program mentality in our prayer lives. What do I mean by that? Well, in the American health program, or at least the way that I was raised, we don't usually visit a doctor until we're sick, right? How often do our prayer lives look the exact same way? I think that there's something for us to learn here in these first two verses about prayer for God's people because Paul is praying for them because it is what you do for the people that you love. I'm convinced that Satan uses his heaviest artillery for the church, and generally he uses it when we are in good shape. And so the question this morning as I see it is, how do I pray for God's people when they're well? For my brothers and my sisters in Christ, for my kids, for my family, for this church, it's a really good question, and God in his grace gives us an answer in Paul's words in the next couple of verses. How do I pray for my fellow believers? Look first with me at verse 17, where Paul teaches us to pray for a better knowledge of Christ. Look at verse 17. It says, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. 
So Paul prays that the people of Ephesus would develop this deeper knowledge of Christ, right? And we know from our study last week that the Christians in Ephesus have already been sealed with the Holy Spirit. They've been, they have given themselves to walking with God. These Christians appreciate the sovereign, redeeming love of God. They know Christ, right? But now Paul prays that God would, by the Holy Spirit, give them a better knowledge of himself. Here's a question for us to consider as we read these verses. Does a Christian know God or does a Christian need to know God? And the answer that Paul would give to that question is yes. Well, thanks, Paul. That's really helpful. But Christians know God when they place their faith in Jesus. That's a fact. Paul's term for having a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ in the New Testament is knowing God. When he wants to say that someone has a saving personal relationship with Jesus, he says they know God. Jesus himself says it like this in John 17, verse three, and this is eternal life that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And so to know God is to be Christian. But Paul also says that all those who know God need to know him better. They need to more fully comprehend and understand and appreciate and experience the greatness of his love. And so Paul's prayer for these Ephesian Christians is that they would, by God's Holy Spirit, increase in their knowledge of God. This might be a little bit elementary for us, but we should be aware that knowing Christ involves more than knowing facts about Christ. Last Saturday, our family went to the USD football game and I stopped for a second at the concession stand with Micah. Um, and I'm not going to say his name in the second service because if I say his name in a service, I owe him $5 if I didn't ask him. So this is our secret, okay? <laughs> but I stopped it. Uh, it's a, it's, he abuses me. But uh, <sighs> I stopped at the concession stand with Micah and Julianne and the kids went on to, the other two kids went on to their seats, but I hadn't told Julianne where we were sitting, so I called her while we were in the stand or in the line and um, said, Julianne, these are our seats. And she said very quickly, Robbie, I got to go by super abruptly. And I thought, well, that's rude. I should be the most important thing to her, but she must've lost one of our kids or something. Uh, I found out later that Julianne had seen Reed Drummond, the pioneer woman, and she hung up on me. <laughs> In line at the concession stand. In fact, I have a picture of it. But so Julianne took a picture with this woman, chatted with her for a second. Um, she makes her pizza crust pretty regularly. Maybe Julianne doesn't even need the recipe for her pizza dough recipe. She knows some facts about her. She even knows where she lives, which is pretty creepy. And my aunt actually informed me after seeing this picture that she makes her recipes. So I guess you could say that we're pretty tight with the pioneer woman, right? But truthfully, and again, I know this is elementary, Julianne knows about the pioneer woman so much so that she will hang up on her husband to take a picture with her. 
But she doesn't know this lady at all. And even more, the pioneer woman certainly doesn't know Julianne. She would be so lucky if you know what I mean. But it's, it's a pretty silly thing. It's really silly. And you can put a different picture up because I know that Julianne's not going to love that I put her. I did ask Julianne if I could share that. But it's a really silly thing. But I think it kind of helps us to see that to really know someone, there has to be a personal knowledge and a personal exchange and intimacy. And I think that it is possible that there are some of us that know a lot about Jesus. We don't really know him. We haven't allowed him to get close to us. We haven't allowed him authority over our lives. We've researched him, but we're not in relationship with him. And here in this prayer, Paul puts his emphasis on the greatest need of the church. Don't think that I'm overstating that. The wisdom and the focus of the world can be summed up in two words. Maybe you've heard them before. Know yourself. And the focus of many, maybe even most Christians, is often the same. Know yourself. Figure out what your personality type is. And we are occupied with getting a knowledge of ourselves rather than knowing Christ and letting him tell us who we are in him. And hear this very, very clearly. The greatest need of any church is to know Christ. It is the key to all of life. And so we ought to read the scriptures with an eye to knowing him. We ought to listen to preaching with this in mind. We ought to listen to uh, or we ought to pray this prayer for the church and for our kids and for ourselves and for our spouses. And you might be asking this question now, okay, but how? How do I know him better? Well, something that is hugely important as we pray to know Christ deeper is found actually in these verses, verses 15 and 16. And that is, there's sorry, 17. And that is that knowing is the Spirit's work in our lives. So Paul prays for a spirit of wisdom and revelation. And so deep knowledge of Christ can only come as the Holy Spirit administers it to us. I read a quote this week from Charles Spurgeon that I thought was funny and true. He said this, Apart from the spirit, it is easier to teach a tiger vegetarianism than an unregenerate person the gospel. And I would also say, than a Christian to grow deeper with Christ. Apart from the Spirit, it's easier to teach a tiger to be a vegetarian. God is revealed in Scripture, but we need the Holy Spirit's glasses to know Him deeper. And so are your prayers for believers to know God more fully by the power of the Holy Spirit? Let me give us all one very practical way to be praying for each other, and maybe you can write this down, but it's, it's this. Ask for the Spirit to build a better, deeper, fuller knowledge of Christ in the people that you pray for. This is a prayer that God loves to answer. After this section here, Paul moves on in his prayer and he says, don't just pray for a better knowledge, pray for better spiritual vision. Look with me at verses 18 and 19 again. They say this, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, 
according to the working of his great might. So Paul prays that the Ephesians might have the eyes of their hearts enlightened. What does that even mean? Well, it sounds weird maybe the first time you read it, but in the scriptures, the heart is the hinge point of a man's being. It was the seat of human intelligence. It was the seat of the will. And so Paul is asking in prayer that God would give spiritual vision so that the Ephesians could see who they were in Christ. As in our physical life, so it is with our soul. Virtually everything depends on sight. And Paul is saying that God would, or praying, sorry, that God would give spiritual eyes of understanding to the Ephesian people. Because he knows that virtually everything in the spiritual life depends upon the ability to see. I think that we probably get it, but before we take off too quickly from this line in verse 18, I think that it would be wise for us to stop for a second and notice something about ourselves. I think that the reason that we often fail to seek the Spirit's illumination in our lives, having our heart eyes opened, is that we have an inflated view of ourselves. Or or at least I do. And so I can be tempted to feel self-sufficient as if I do not need God's help. But the first step to becoming a student of the Bible is having a heart of humility, a heart that says, God, open my eyes. Please give me understanding. Here's something that is just a fact. We don't need more truth. We don't need better truth. That doesn't exist. It's here. We simply need our spiritual eyes open to the truths that surround us in God's word. We need better spiritual vision for what God has given us. And specifically, Paul asks God for better vision with regard to three realities of our salvation in these verses. He says, God, open their eyes so that they can have hope, so that they see the riches and they see the power that they have in you today. I'm going to look at these three words very quickly. And here's the first one, hope. Notice that he says first, so that you will know what is the hope to which he has called you. So Paul is praying for the people for a deep, real grasp of reality that you have been called out of darkness and into marvelous light. And when God called you, he gave you real and substantial and tangible hope in this fallen and messed up world. We cannot live the Christian life without hope. I'm going to say something very obvious, I think, but when we look at ourselves, and I know I've pointed at us a few times today, and I'm really sorry, but when we look at our church, and when we look at our city, and when we look across the globe at Israel and Palestine, and when we look at our culture, there is so much to be hopeless about. Honestly, when we can't see past the moment We tend to lose hope. And here the Apostle Paul is saying that no Christian ought ever to be in a hopeless circumstance. Why? Because God, by his Holy Spirit, grounds us in this hope of our calling. What is our calling? Well, God has called us from darkness into light. God has called us from bondage into freedom. God has called us from the dominion of Satan into the glorious dominion of the Lord Jesus Christ. God has called us from slavery to the freedom of being called sons and daughters. 
And throughout the scriptures, the word hope always refers to that which is coming, to that which is ahead. And sometimes as believers, we get so nearsighted and we forget the reality of our future. So we strive for the things that are right here and right now. And we get depressed because we don't see the whole picture. It's interesting to me that Paul isn't praying for the Ephesians to be secure in their jobs or that they would have a better salary or that their kids would never go through any struggles. Here's why. Because he believes that their greatest need is spiritual eyes to see the hope of the glory of God. He is praying that they would understand that God has saved them now And they're going to stand with Christ at the final press conference, and they're going to be in the family photo. This is a prayer for us to pray for each other. God has called us to a distinct way of life with a glorious future hope. But that isn't all that he wants the Ephesians to see with the eyes of their hearts. He also prays that they might understand the riches of their calling. He prays that their eyes would be opened as to the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. But what does that mean? I think we read this, and I actually have for a long, long time. In fact, I kind of just had my mind changed this week on this passage. But Paul wants us to see that we are God's riches. Usually when we think about our inheritance, we think of what we get from God, right? our inheritance from God. But here Paul is wanting the Ephesians and us to understand that we are so precious to God that he considers us his own inheritance. It says his inheritance in the saints. It's likely that Paul is drawing from Deuteronomy chapter 32, verses 8 and 9, which says this, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the number of the sons of God. So he gave them pieces of land as their inheritance, God's people. But look at this line. But the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. Some other translations say Jacob is the place of his inheritance. Don't miss this, please. God's people are God's riches. We are God's riches. Think about Jesus' parable. The man who sold everything he had to buy the land to get the pearl, right? We are God's riches. That is hugely profound. And I think if we could get this, it would change our lives. That is why Paul prays that our eyes would be open to this truth. You might say, well, I know my spiritual poverty. And so I wonder how God could ever find any inheritance in me. Well, let me tell you this first. You need to know that God can make riches out of poor men and women because that's what God does. But secondly, you should know this. This incredible truth is only true because of the fact that God sees us in Christ. Think of this reality with me this morning. God owns all of the heavens and all of the planets and the numberless stars and all of the labradoodles and golden doodles and all the cute things in the world. And yet you are his most prized possession. The redeemed in Christ are worth more than the universe. This truth ought to make your heads spin. Paul prays that we will see this truth with our hard eyes. 
So Paul prays that the eyes of our hearts would be open to the hope of our calling and to the reality of our status of his inheritance. And then thirdly, Paul prays that our eyes would be open to the surpassing greatness of his power. He prays this in verse 19. He says that they would open the the eyes of their hearts would be open to the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. Paul's going to pile up argument after argument after argument for God's power in the next few verses. And we're actually going to look at those next week. So I'm going to keep this really short, but I do want to say this. He is again drawing our attention to the surpassing greatness of God's power and really at the same time to the surpassing weakness of ours. When we look at ourselves, if we're honest, we should think, man, I'm weak. It's apparent to us, I think, that our weakness is often no match for the challenges that we face in the world we live in. But Paul says God's power is immeasurable and it is his power that is working in us. Paul says God's almighty power is available to his saints to overcome the world. And that's an amazing truth. He's encouraging you in your weakness and saying, I just want you to remember, and you may find this hard to believe, but that the same power of God that raised Jesus from the dead, that same power is at work in you, making you more like Christ. And so when you despair that you will never grow or you despair that you will never break an addiction or whatever, you need the eyes of your hearts open to the reality that it is the power that raised Christ from the dead that is conforming you into the image of his son. Paul's prayer is, Lord, help me to see the dominating power of the resurrected Christ working in the people. So maybe you're asking this question this morning, okay, well, what should we do with this passage today? I believe one thing for us this morning, I I just have one thing for us that will radically change our church, I think. And here it is. We should pray this prayer for each other. We should pray this for our kids. We should pray this for our church. We should pray this for our spouses. Worship team, you can come on up. I find it really, really fascinating that in Paul's day, the people of Ephesus, they were totally taken. We talked about this the first week, but they were totally taken with the Greek god Artemis, or Diana was her name. The people of Ephesus, they were in the middle of what they would have called their sexual revolution. It was just a foul city. And in the middle of all of that, The church in Ephesus was called to belong to Jesus and live in holiness. And I would imagine that there were some people asking questions like we would ask regularly. Questions like this. What are we going to do with our families in this culture? Or how are we going to bring up our kids in these schools that don't have the same values as us? Or What about my friends, Paul? Some of my friends are worshiping Artemis. What should we do? Or what about our jobs? We might stick out like a sore thumb if we try to honor God. The culture is going south. Can anybody relate to any of these questions? What should we do? Everything is terrible. 
Now, each of those areas that I mentioned, I want to be clear, those are reasons for concern, and they are definitely occasions for prayer. In fact, Paul said in Philippians that we should pray about everything. So tell God your needs, for sure. But I find it really, really interesting interesting today that Paul's not praying for the health and the culture and for the political issues or for the employment issues of the church in Ephesus. Instead, he prays for the saints that their hearts would be enlightened so that they could see clearly the hope and the riches and the power to which they'd been called in Jesus Christ. The hope, the riches, and the power that are theirs. And you and I might read this passage and think something like this. Well, that prayer isn't very practical for our needs. And I want us to know this morning that this prayer in Ephesians 1 is intensely practical. And I believe today, especially after studying this passage all week, that one of the reasons that we find ourselves in a predicament in the conservative evangelical church is that we fail to find this prayer the most practical thing for our faith. I'm so convinced that what you and I need the most this morning is what Paul prays for, for the Ephesians. We need a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of God. We need to know God. Maybe you feel alone and left out or without friends or without community. Maybe you feel trapped in a habit that you hate and you want to break it so badly. Or maybe you have a temper that seems completely out of control. Or maybe your lustful thoughts are overwhelming you. Maybe your marriage is struggling deeply. And what you are looking for today is some practical step forward. Let me tell you what I know we all need. All of us need a knowledge of God. You need to know the hope to which he has called you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, Robbie, that still doesn't do anything for my current practical need. Can I just say this? And I can because I have a microphone and you don't. But this prayer that Paul prays for the church is intensely practical. We need to have our spiritual eyes open to the power of God in our lives. We need this more than anything. And so to end this message this morning, I'm just going to pray this prayer over us today. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, I pray this morning for the people of Hillside. Lord, I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would give us a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of you. God, open the eyes of our hearts. Father, allow us to see clearly in this broken world the hope to which you have called us. God, give us a deep revelation of the reality that you have chosen us before the foundations of the earth and that we are your inheritance, highly prized and loved by you. Father, help us to see the power to overcome. Lord God, give our church eyes to see the dominating power of the resurrected Christ that works in us. Father, we love you. May you make the reality of what it means to be united with Christ and the benefit of what it means to be in Christ apparent to us today as you open the eyes of our hearts. In Jesus' precious name, amen.